Let me get you to open the Bible to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, <clears throat> on page 909 in the Pew Bible, or on page 9 in the bulletin. We're going to read this morning Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Please stand. This is Luke writing. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray you'd be pleased to send the Holy Spirit powerfully upon us, that you would open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please keep the um, Bible reading open in front of you, if you would. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It's really been an, uh, an amazing week. Uh, dealing with the fallout of those terrible shootings in Allen. It really was made particularly real to us at Metrocrest because uh, Laura Stites, who is our church's administrative assistant, her daughter, her 16-year-old daughter, uh, actually works at the Allen Outlet Mall and was at work that Saturday, last Saturday, when there was this terrible shooting. Uh, her daughter, Laura's daughter, was, was at work there at, at her workplace, and it just so happens where her daughter was at work was just across from where the shooter wound up being killed uh, later in the morning, later in the afternoon. And uh, so her daughter was there on the premises that whole time, uh, heard all the noises, saw all the craziness. Um, and then it just so happens that Laura's daughter uh, had dealings with two, that day, with two of the people who were killed. Um, one woman, the, the young Indian girl, uh, came into the store and actually bought something from, uh, from Laura's daughter. Laura handled the transaction that day. And then the young security guard, Christian LaCour, uh, who was killed trying to help the first person who was injured, uh, that young security guard had come into the store to deal with something that had happened earlier in the day. And, and again, Laura's daughter 
had dealings with this young 20-year-old man who wound up being killed that afternoon. So you can only imagine uh, it's been devastating for Laura's whole family, and we assured her that we'd be praying for her uh, today after the service during our prayer meeting, along with all the people of Allen, all the families of the people who were killed, all the people who were wounded. We're going to be praying together to the Lord for them. Uh, I don't know if you've read much about all of it, but I've I've been reading a lot this week about it. Uh, There were several people who were involved. Uh, One was the Cho family, uh, Korean-Americans. They were uh, churchgoers. They actually attended church here in Carrollton, a place called New Song Church, not far from here. I know their pastor. Uh, The whole family was killed except for the the little six-year-old boy, William. And I have a grandson who's about that age, and I got to tell whose name is also William. And I got to tell you, I've, I've had that in my head, how devastated that family must be uh, this Lord's Day morning uh, to have lost uh, the, the, the mom, the dad, and a three-year-old who was also killed, their grandparents fortunately involved. And how devastated those grandparents must be to have seen uh, the whole family wiped out and just this one little survivor, a uh, six-year-old boy uh, who was wounded, uh, that's, that's so uh, hard to think about that. There was another situation. Uh, here it is, Mother's Day weekend. There was a mother named Ilda Mendoza who was wounded in the shooting. She lost two daughters. Uh, she lost her daughter, Daniela, and her daughter, Sophia. Daniela was 11. Sophia was 8. Uh, they were at the mall celebrating, and uh, Ilda lost both of her daughters there that day. Uh, it's just just so horrible to think about. Uh, this is the crazy world where we live. This is the world that uh, we uh, reflect on this morning as we open the Bible. What, what does the Bible have to say to us in the midst of so much craziness? Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's easy in this kind of situation to identify the good guys and the bad guys and uh, the, the victims and the perpetrator good guys, the bad guy. Uh, There are other good guys and bad guys. The good guys are the people who tend to agree with us about how to respond. Uh, The bad guys are the people who disagree with us about how to respond. Uh, And let me tell you, that is a very difficult situation where the the ugliness just sort of projects out. And our culture has become so deeply politicized that we go, it seems like, from disaster to disaster to disaster, and we can't seem to do anything about it. We can't seem to agree on a, on a strategy to respond. Uh, this month, we're collecting money. Some of you will know this. We're collecting money this month as a church to send to Nashville, to the Covenant Church there, that had a shooting just last month. And it seems like we can, we can hardly stay on top of the, the sadness and the grief and the loss and the ugliness all around us. And it's very easy in this context for us to slip into a kind of us-them way of thinking. Protect us. Defeat them. Do something to stop them. And that's a very easy place for us to be, for us to, to allow ourselves to, to get into that sort of a situation. Well, all that's been on my mind this week is I've been looking at this passage from Acts. Uh, the Lord here is continuing 
uh, some work that has been described in the Gospel of Luke. Acts was written by the same author who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke. And here in Acts, we are going to be introduced to a couple of very important points that I think will help us in this crazy world. And I know it's important for us to think about in this crazy world. I want to give you two points for us to have in mind this morning. One is Jesus' mission, and the second is the church's mission. Now, you might wonder, why are we talking about mission on a Sunday like this when there's so much grief? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, you can understand they were the disciples, the apostles here, are also in the midst of grief. They had seen their teacher and master die on the cross. They had seen him suffer and die. And they had for years and years and years endured the hardship of oppression by the Romans. They had seen many loved ones die. They had seen many loved ones suffer oppression. So there was, a, there was a heaviness, there was a grief among the people there in Jerusalem. It, it, was, it was a difficult time. It was a, a time in its own way absolutely as crazy as any other time. In some ways, it was the worst time because the light had come into the world and the world wanted darkness. And so they, they sought to kill the light himself. So the context of of uh, darkness and confusion and grief, uh, those were not foreign to the apostles as we see them here in Acts chapter 1. They were full of questions. They were full of uncertainty. And so actually one of the things that we see here in verse 8, sorry, verse 6, so when they had come together, it says, the apostles asked him, the Lord Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You can hear the echoes of how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord. Israel, for generation after generation after generation, had endured hardship. And they had hoped and they had thought that Jesus was going to bring an end to the oppression. Jesus was going to begin the the restoration of Israel, the kingdom. And so they want to know about the timing. You and I might have similar questions. Lord, how long? When will you put an end to these things? Jesus said to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. You know, we, we often come up to the Lord with questions about chronologies and how soon and when will you do this and when will you do that. And, and Jesus makes it very plain in this passage something that you and I need to learn. That is that God's timing, his seasons are fixed by his authority and the timing is not really our concern. That's not our concern. Jesus lovingly rebukes them. He he wants them to know that that's not something they need to worry about. And, And I think that's important for you and me to remember too. We're not in charge of the timing. We couldn't really handle the timing. You'd have told them 2,000 years ago that they'd be still waiting 2,000 years later. I'm not sure how they could have handled it. So we can't really handle the timing. It's not important for us to know the timing. But Jesus does want us to know some very important things about the time while we're awaiting his return. 
First of all, Luke makes a point that Jesus wants us to know about Jesus's mission. Luke tells us something that hasn't been told to us in any of the other gospel accounts. According to Luke, during the period between Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday morning and Ascension Thursday, which is actually going to be commemorated this coming Thursday, in those 40 days, Jesus had met with his disciples and he had taught them. He had actually taught them specifically about himself and about the kingdom. He had, he had, as we learned from Luke 24, he had taught them about how the whole of the Bible is fulfilled in him. And central to his life and ministry is the mission that he had been seeking to fulfill when he came into the world. From Luke chapter 1 and the, the birth and nativity of Jesus, all the way through the crucifixion, all the way up to the resurrection, Jesus had been working towards the fulfillment of a God-given mission. He had been working to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of Luke, as well as all the other Gospels, record Jesus' teaching the truth to the people. How he had come to tell them about God's fulfilled promises that were in him. And how the Lord Jesus had come into the world to reach out to those who were lost, those who were separated from him, to bring good news. Matthew tells us the same story. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew. We're taking a break to look at Luke. But Matthew tells the same story of Jesus who'd come into the world to seek and to save the lost. And that mission is central to what Jesus wants his disciples to his apostles to know. He has a mission. It's a mission that had been pronounced all the way back at the very beginning. The beginning of the Old Testament, but at the beginning of the Gospel, when John the Baptist preached, and he's quoted here, uh, here we have a quote on the lips of the Lord Jesus regarding John the Baptist in verses 4 and 5. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here was a promise that Jesus shared, and it has to do with his mission, which he is entrusting to them. That brings us to the second point. Jesus' mission is the church's mission. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus began his mission. And now, Jesus is entrusting his mission to the church. So, Jesus' mission is the church's mission. It's your mission. It's my mission. It's the mission of MetroCrest. It's the mission of the PCA. It's the mission of Jesus' church around the world and across the ages. It has been entrusted to us. We don't need to worry about the timing. We need to worry about being faithful to the mission Christ entrusted to us. I want to think about three different things about the church's mission. First, missional learning. Jesus came and he opened the scriptures to the apostles so that the apostles can open the scriptures to us. 
That's my job as a pastor. My job is to teach the Bible. My job is to open the Bible and to help us to understand and apply God's word. It's not up to me to teach uh, denominational doctrine. It's not up to me to, to teach my own personal agenda. It's not up to me to cook up stories. My job is to teach God's word. And that's what the apostles are themselves entrusted with. They were taught the Bible so that they could teach the Bible, so that you and I can teach the Bible to others. Missional learning. We have to learn mission. It doesn't come to us naturally. You see, we're typically drawn to this us-them way of thinking all the time. Uh, the us is the, the people that we know best. And the, the circle kind of slowly grows out from there to the thems. However you define it, whether you define it politically or culturally or personally, geographically, however you may define it, that's the way we tend on our own to react to things. Jesus actually makes reference to this in verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as he describes this, this mission and the way they will be his witnesses, he, he's describing, for one thing, geography. Uh, it, they are literally in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so he, he describes it geographically, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then, then the ends of the earth. The book of Acts opens near Jerusalem and it closes in Rome. Rome was just about as close as you could get to the ends of the earth. For a first century Jew. From, the, from the, the geographical home of the Jewish people to the home of the oppressor. And Jesus said to his apostles, you will be my witnesses there. Describing the geography. If you look through the rest of the book of Acts, what you will see is they do exactly what Jesus describes. The first chapter or two has to do with the church in Jerusalem. The next chapter or two has to do with the church in Judea and Samaria. And then it, these circles expand all the way through the chapters, the book of Acts, as the geographical influence of the gospel is described. So it, it does describe learning about the geographical growth of the church the geographical growth of the church's mission. But it's not just geography, is it? I mean, it's also a significant statement about the theology. Jerusalem representing the people of Israel. The gospel was first taught to the people of Israel. And Judea, the people of Israel. And even Samaria, the half-Jew neighbors that the Jews hated. And it also extended to the people who lived outside of the influence of the Old Testament, outside of the influence of Israel. So there's a, a geographical, there's a theological. There's also, I think, a, 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 a way of understanding this which has to do with what we are most comfortable with. We all have our personal Jerusalem. It's, it's the place that thinks the most like we think and is most like us culturally and we're most comfortable dealing in that environment. And Jesus is saying that as he leads us out beyond that area we're most comfortable, he leads us into the, this broadening circle and he gives us the opportunity to be his witnesses. He empowers us to be his witnesses 
in the place closest to us, in the way we think, the way we believe, to the places furthest from us. And this is certainly an area for us in them thinking. It moves us from the people most like us, who look like us, who talk like us, who have similar backgrounds, all the way out to the people who are least like us, who look the least like us, whose culture is the least like our culture. Jesus seems to be saying to the apostles, as he says to us, that the gospel is going to push you and me beyond those comfort zones further and further, where we take the gospel to the very ends of the world. So there's missional learning. There's also missional waiting. That was what I think the disciples were having a hard time with. They, they didn't understand the waiting. They were ready for the kingdom to come in its fullness right then. And they asked him, when will that happen, Jesus? When will you put an end to all the shootings? When will you put an end to all the evil in the world? To them, Jesus says, that's not for you to worry about. You know, I think he still says that to us. Maybe it's the older I get. I, I find myself thinking about this more and more. I find myself thinking about end times and when is the Lord going to return? And what does all that mean? And I've got, a young, I've got kids and grandkids and I find myself wrestling with that. And Jesus says to Bill Lovell, as he says to you, as he said to the apostles, don't worry about the timing. That's not the point of the waiting. There's a famous play called Waiting for Godot, and it's two men who are just waiting, just waiting and waiting and waiting. There's a pointlessness to it. There's a despair in it. And it's possible for waiting to be like that. Have you ever been waiting on a delayed flight from the airport? I have. How awful is that? Just waiting and waiting and waiting, forever delayed. There is a certain kind of waiting that can feel like that. Waiting that's almost despairing, giving up. That's not the kind of waiting Jesus is talking about. He he makes, actually, the the two men who appear in verse 10 and 11 kind of make reference to this. The, The apostles are watching as Jesus is taken into glory. It says uh, he, is, he is taken from them. Uh, a cloud, it says, takes him out of their sight. I think that is a description of the, the transformation of the resurrected Christ who is taken to the place where he is seated at God's right hand. And with that ascension, which we will celebrate on Thursday, the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, he now is is made available to the whole church in a new way. Up until this point, Jesus can be in one place at one time, just like you and me. But after the resurrection, after the ascension, Jesus now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in his resurrection life, is now available to his whole church. So he's here with us this morning. We're going to celebrate this meal in just a moment. And brothers and sisters, he will be here with us. And meanwhile, on the other side of the world, as Christians begin to to celebrate or or end the Lord's Day, whichever direction they are in in the clock, 
there will be this celebration, this presence of Christ. That's the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus, who is now available to all of us by the power of the Spirit. And so the two men say to the apostles, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you just waiting as you just look up into the sky or look up into the clouds? Just this, this pointless waiting. Well, they're called to missional waiting. You know what you do with missional waiting? You're not concerned with the chronology. You're concerned with the mission. Jesus himself has taught several parables that refer to this. The idea is, while we await the return of Jesus, who brothers and sisters will one day return in glory, while we're waiting on him, whether it's two years, 2,000 years, or 10,000 years, the timing is not our concern. The mission is our concern. While we await Jesus, do you know what we're taught what we're commanded to do, what we're called to do, we're called to take the mission that Jesus began to do and teach and to do and teach that today. This church has been entrusted with Jesus Christ's mission. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit with the Spirit to do it, to proclaim it. That's not an option to us. It's our calling. It's, it's who we are in Christ. Someone asked me the other day, Bill, why do you talk so much about mission? I talk so much about mission because Jesus talked about mission. It's Jesus' mission. It's not Bill Lovell's mission. It's not the PCA's mission. It's Jesus' mission entrusted to the church. You see, we're not so much a church with a mission. We, we, we could think of ourselves that way. But we're not honestly not so much a church with a mission. We're a mission with a church. Jesus' work entrusted to us. The mission is the priority. It's not something we can wait to do. You know, every once in a while... You, you know, you hear, well, we've got to sort this out. We've got to fix this other thing. We've got to do all these things. Then we can do the mission. No. Whatever else we may have to work on, we do the mission now. Because this is the day. This is the day we're called to be faithful. Not just tomorrow. Not yesterday. We're called to be faithful today. Yesterday's mistakes are behind us. Tomorrow we have no control over. It's today that you and I are called to be engaged in mission. Our church is at a transition point where we're trying to figure out, okay, the Lord has brought us through lots of challenges, lots of tough times. Where do we go now? Well, it's not actually something we vote on. It's something we recognize. It's something we acknowledge. It's something we obey. I mean, you only have to look at the concluding verses of every gospel. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives the great commission to the church. Mark's gospel, we read about the commandment to go and preach to all nations. Luke's gospel has a summary of the great commission. As Jesus is ascending into heaven, he entrusts his mission to his church, commissions them as his witnesses. John's gospel 
Same thing. The, the Gospels could hardly be clearer. And all the writings of Paul and all the apostles taught by Jesus underscore again and again and again how you and I, each one of us, are called to be witnesses in our day, waiting for Christ by being faithful to Christ. So missional learning and missional waiting. And finally, I just want to underscore this idea of missional thinking. Uh, the, the us and them way that you and I so often think about the world. The way I think about the world. Us and them. Us and, and the other persons who are different from us or who disagree with us. Does anybody know the TV program, The Last of Us? Anybody know that? It's a very popular TV program. My wife and I, I'm going to confess this to you, my wife and I enjoy watching The, the Last of Us. Uh, it's a very interesting TV program. Yeah, it's a zombie program. Okay, it is a zombie program. Spoiler alert, the zombies are bad guys. And the, the whole program is built around this premise of there's a small group of people who are normal, and then there are all the other zombies. Okay? It's uh, sort of like The Walking Dead, but post-COVID and a new cast. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a show about that. And I, I, as we were watching just the other day, and, and Liza and I enjoy watching, it's, a, it's an interesting program, well put together. Uh, but it's interesting how often we slip into thinking of the world that way. <laughs> it's us versus the zombies. It's us versus the bad guys. Whether the us is conservatives or evangelicals or Christians or whatever the us may be, it's us against the rest of the world. Us, them. Well, one of these days, I want to produce a zombie show where the protagonists care deeply about the zombies. I'm going to try to copyright this. So, uh, Where the, the, the protagonists care deeply about the zombies around them. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? What we just said in Ephesians um, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, James read it as the uh, responsive assurance of pardon. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We live in a world full of zombies and we're all former zombies. You see, what Jesus is describing here and what we see through the rest of the book of Acts is protagonists engaging a dead world with the gospel. And with the power of the Holy Spirit to bring new life. And that's what you and I are called to do while we wait. We are not called to build a bunker with ever higher fences and get more and more guns and stockpile food. We're not called to do those things. 
We're actually called to go out into the dark and needy world, the dead world in which we live, to bring life. And we do that in the, in the midst of zombies. We do that in the midst of people who look so different. Think of the person you're least like, whatever the, that may be. You come up with that person in your mind. The transgendered people. The people who are confused about that. Think of the people who disagree with you on your political opinions. Think about whoever is least like you. Jesus has entrusted that person, those people, in a special sense to you. To reach out, to bring good news, to love them, to care for them. That's what we do while we wait. We, we share the good news. We, we love others in Jesus' name. We don't judge them. We don't hate them. We don't push them away. We speak the truth to them as we show love to them and invite them in to the fellowship of the one who has a soft spot for zombies and who loves those who are a million miles from him. Well, that, that's so much my prayer for us at MetroCrest. That we would grow more and more as a church in love with others, in love with the gospel of Jesus, and in love with his mission to take the good news to those who are dead, who are very far from him.